Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast, episode 66 with Brandon Webb. Thanks for joining me. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm glad you could be here today. Um, Happy New Year. This is the first episode of the new year. It's another two-parter. Please follow Brandon on Twitter right now. He's at Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-W-E-B-B. Brandon is a former SEAL sniper with SEAL Team 3. He's an author. He is the uh, editor at sofrep.com. He is a very, very interesting man. He's a New York Times bestseller. More about him in a moment. Please, if you're new, welcome. Please subscribe to the show. Please spread the word. Um, If you like the show, please do me the biggest kindness and just retweet. Tweet out about the show. Tweet that you heard the show uh, and with a link to the iTunes page. That would be the greatest thing you can do for me. This show is free. I'm going to try and make it always be free, at least the new episodes, as far as I can. Uh, but please, uh, if you like the show, please send out a tweet and um, let people know you heard it. Let people know they should listen to it. Um, that'd be great. Just to check in this week, I had a, a fantastic uh, Christmas to New Year adventure, um, like many people online who are on the cycling platform Strava. Strava is a little like uh, Facebook for cyclists, except unlike Facebook, you uh, have hard data to prove that you actually did something. Facebook, you can kind of doctor photographs and uh, get lighting right and stuff like that. But Strava, uh, it takes the GPS data and timing data from various GPS-enabled watches and phones and, and various other devices that are attached to your wrist or your bicycle as you climb up and down mountains or do races, and it puts it online. Uh, for everyone to see. So you can test yourself against others, even though you're not in a race with other people, you can test yourself how fast you can go up a mountain or down a mountain or around a corner or something like that. So they had a challenge to do 500 kilometers between New Year's Eve and Christmas Eve. And um, it was really great. I pushed myself. Um, I got pretty baked, (laughs) but I found out things that I didn't think I could do before. I found out that I can indeed ride two 100-kilometer rides back-to-back day after day, which I'd never done before. I'd only ever done them like once a week on the weekend, but I did them back-to-back, which was pretty awesome. And uh, New Year's Day is funny. Someone this morning sent me an email. They were going through some old photos, and they found a photo of me at a Bondi Iceberg Sneaky Sound System New Year's Day party. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I looked at that photo. I'm like... Man, my New Year's Day this year was so far from that. Uh, this year, I spent my New Year's Day climbing mountains 
with Rich Roll and Dan McPherson, um, who are two of the fittest humans ever. And when Rich and Dan say, oh, yeah, I'll come for the ride, but oh, I'm pretty unfit, I was out stripped. I was sucking in massive lungfuls of air trying to keep up with these two guys as they just casually t- chatted up these, uh, up these giant hills up the back of uh, Malibu. But um, let me tell you, I would much rather be spending my New Year's Day climbing mountains at the back of Malibu than um, out of my mind <laughs> at a dance party. But, you know, you have to do those things to realize you don't want to do them anymore. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty amazing. Um, how am I going? Well, the new, the new meds seem to be working and, and they're manifesting in, a, in an interesting way. Um, so I went to this fantastic New Year's Eve party with my friend Mel. She invited me to this fabulous place. Uh, it was really low-key. It was a house party. Um, which is you know full of really lovely people. I do like a house party. It was it was really great, and uh, the dance floor was in a back room with a great sound system. And honestly, folks, I guess the um, I guess the new meds seem to be working because for the first time since I stopped drinking, for the first time in sobriety, I danced. I haven't danced in a long time. It used to take me three to four drinks to get on the dance floor but the dj played it helped the dj was a friend the the dj she played i want to be your lover from prince now that song that is my jam that song and i just started boogieing i haven't had a boogie in so long it felt incredible to feel so relaxed and free in this party this room full of strangers that i would have otherwise you know felt quite self-conscious in but something's working man something's working um I still kind of wake up in the morning and my brain tries to tell me that the world is ending every day. And so I still have to live with that, but it's less painful than it used to be. It's less intense, um, but slowly, slowly working through it. But little things like that are happening. Little signs like that are happening. So um, I think I'm, uh, I don't want to speak too soon, but I'm on a different trajectory at least. So let me tell you about my guest today. He is a really really remarkable man. Brandon Tyler Webb, he's a former Navy SEAL sniper. He was on SEAL Team 3. Less than a month after 9-11, Brandon was in the caves of Afghanistan hunting bin Laden. He's now an author. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's written more than six books. Red Circle is his latest. Among Heroes is coming out very, very soon. He's an unassuming man. When you think Navy SEAL, do you think what the movies would tell us what a what a you know warrior giant army man or military man would be? No, he's an unassuming guy. He's but you wouldn't know by looking at him if you walk down the street that this guy was one of the most incredible SEAL snipers that ever ever existed. He went on to run the SEAL Sniper Training Academy and trained more than three hundred snipers, including uh, the uh, guys behind Lone Survivor, the guy behind Lone Survivor and the guy behind the film American Sniper. Um, he's a very, very interesting man. And when you sit in his presence, he is so calm and he's so relaxed. And you look at him and he speaks with the wisdom that only someone who's been in war, in the front lines of war and has seen the things that he's seen, looked down the scope of his rifle and seen what has happened after he's pulled the trigger. He speaks with such peace 
and humility. It's it's not what you might think. Um, he's a very very measured, very very measured man. And and look, I grew up around the military. My mum was a doctor in the Australian Army, so uh, non enlisted, but she worked for fifteen years for the military. And so I grew up around um, enlisted men and women. And I've always kind of been fascinated that some of the freedoms that I enjoy are only there because men and women like the men and women that I met growing up and men and women like Brandon are willing to sacrifice their freedom so that I may live and not know what they might have done. This is a two-parter. I split it into two because there's two very different sides to this conversation. I implore you to listen to next week because once we get the origin story through and Brandon's origin story is is fascinating. He reflects on he became one of the best people in the world in his words at killing bad guys. Next week, when you listen, you'll hear Brandon reflect on the effectiveness of force as a tool to bringing peace. Peace, and the answer may surprise you. So please stick with this. It's a very, very interesting story. Brandon T. Webb on Twitter, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-W-E-B-B on Twitter. Let him know you heard him here. Check out his podcast, sofrep.com, S-O-F-R-E-P.com. It's a, it's a podcast for the special forces, uh, special operations uh, community around the world. Now, some of this subject matter may be tough for you to hear, but I encourage you to approach it with an open mind because... Well, I guess I just would want you to maybe try and listen to what it is to be one of the people who puts their lives on the line for others every day. Regardless of how you feel about the policies that may deploy men and women like Brandon, I hope you can hear that when those people, safe and warm in offices far away from danger, make a decision, people like Brandon pick up their bags and go on head first into that danger. And as we discussed, not all of them come back. So enjoy a cup of coffee in the West Village in New York City with Brandon Webb. Okay, here we go. Thanks for the coffee, man. Yeah, no worries. Where are we? Is this the Greenwich Village? West, West Village. West Village. Yeah, West Village. I don't know Good the stuff. difference. Well, I'm pretty new to New York too, so I'm okay. Well, thanks <laughs> but, for ha- thanks for having me. Yeah, no, how you doing? Good, good. I'm All glad right. I can talk to you today. Yeah, um, this is my first time, I think, sitting down with a New York Times bestselling author. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> I bought your book last night. Did you the Red Circle? Yes, I did. All right. Yeah, let me know what you think. I bought the Kindle. Okay. I hope you don't mind. Yeah, no, no, not at all. It still counts. Yeah. Okay. Counts. <laughs> People have actually asked me, can you like scribe the back of my uh, my e-reader or whatever right for the autograph but i also i also bought the um active shooter ebook okay so i thought that was really interesting yeah that you would because you're right you know, they'd report on this stuff all the time but they never say by the way if this ever happens yeah what are you gonna do about it what are you gonna do about it yeah uh but look i'm hoping we can talk a bit about that i really want to talk about the digital media empire that you're <laughs> you're creating yeah um but i'd also like to talk about uh, your military career, because I've, sure. you know, I've never really sat down and had a chance to speak with someone uh, yeah. who does your job. I told you that my mum worked as a doctor for the Australian military for a long time. So, but that she left when I was, I think, seventeen or eighteen. So, 
I was around the army all the time. I was in the military base to go and visit my mum as a doctor and I would go and hang out with her there quite a bit. So I saw it quite a bit, but I never really talked to the men and women there um, about what their life was like. They were just people at mum's work. Sure. When did you first become aware of what a soldier is? How old were you when your parents went, oh, or were you asked the question, who's that man or woman? Yeah, I, at a very early age, I actually loved aviation. And so I was aspiring to be a pilot. And so I, you know, through, you know, watching Top Gun as a kid, you know, learning. <laughs> so I was probably you know, 12, 13 when I first. Yeah, we're the same age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, so I was aware of it from that perspective, from the aviation angle. I had no idea what the Navy SEALs were or any of that stuff until I was 16. And, um, you know, my story, I was, my parents are hippies. My dad picked my mom up in Malibu Canyon hitchhiking with her friends. And he was this hippie that moved from Toronto to California and, you know, was owned a landscaping business. God, God knows what else he was doing on the side, right? I'm sure he had quite the green thumb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so he hijacked, married my mom, moved her to British Columbia, Canada, up in the mountains north of... Mom's uh, American? Yeah, my mom's American, my dad's Canadian. Moved her up to uh, a small town called Kimberley in, in uh, British Columbia. It's a little ski, mining ski town. Started a company. Um, I'll try and not make a long story longer, but... Uh, We've got time. You know, he had... <laughs> um, my mom had myself, my sister... Um, as a kid, I was a terror. Like she, I was, you know, she set me down. And I would, you know, crawl, crawl off anything, um, push my sister down the stairs, drink. I was in the hospital every week getting my stomach pumped for drinking anything from bleach to honeysuckle after bath lotion. <laughs> I, I, I was such a maniac. My mom, she literally was like, I don't know what to do with this kid. He's like, you were the kind of kid I'd put you on a table and you would just crawl off and bang, hit your head on the floor. You just didn't, didn't care. Um, she called social services on herself when my dad built this pen for, for me outside of our house so she could go out and do her gardening and just like put me in the cage. <laughs> uh, but I tunneled underneath and like escaped and she was eight months pregnant with my sister trying to like goad me back up the hills like, you know, the coyotes in the, in the woods in the background, and she was terrified. So she, she lost it. She called social services on herself. True story. I was like, look, I need help. Like, I feel like I want to, like, hurt my son, <laughs> and I love him. So they showed up, and, of course, she said that they, um, you know, they showed up, and I was like, I had someone new to play with, so it was great. Like, the, the lady from social services said, I don't know what you're talking about, lady. Like, this is one of the nicest, you know, two-year-olds I've ever met. Um, anyway... I love my mom. Um, I. So what was school like for a kid like that? Oh man, it was, it was a mess. It was so bad that I was getting in fights. I remember and, and I must've been first or second grade. I had this idea with my friend that we would like plant this ex like small, like firecracker explosive in the bathroom. And we ended up blowing out one of the pipes and flooded the whole school. And in Canada, it's in, indoors. So the, they had to evacuate the entire entire school. It was I was on the list, but my mom early demolition yeah, work from right yeah. my mom started getting me involved in sports. So I started ski racing. Uh, she would pick me up, you know, from school, and we'd go to the mountain, and I would just get it out that way. And I think it just I had so much energy, 
you know, I don't know what whatever the hell the, the term is these days, ADD or whatever you want to call it. But I yeah, you're lucky they didn't medicate you. Yeah, yeah, they just said, look, and somebody told them. I think they did ask the, the professional doctor, what can we do? And they said, look, just channel the energy into something productive. And so she started getting me in sports, and 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 I, I had a lot of success as a kid and and sports from wrestling, wrestling, baseball, ice hockey. Every season, you know, my mom made sure I was signed up, ready for something. Um, There's nothing quite like a parent when they, they when they when the parent comes home and the kid goes from dinner to bath to, sh- to bed at eight o'clock at night. They just high five each other like, "Yes, yeah. tired out. Yeah. All right, tomorrow's another day." Exactly. Um, Ice hockey must have been fun for a kid that likes to crawl off things. So you mean it's legal that I can just skate up to this guy and check yeah. him super hard into the wall? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love hockey. I love ice hockey. My little um, brother played ice hockey. It's a great sport. Um, so Canada happened as a, a young age for me. My dad ended up losing. He built this very successful construction company and, and had lost everything. And it really devastated him. And I think forced him to think about his priorities and what what was important to him. Because he ended up filing for bankruptcy. And, you know, we just we had a house in the States on the lake, we had a boat and they just took everything. So he was devastated. And I think him and my mom said, you know what, we've always talked and had this dream that we want to go on the, you know, sailing around the world and this cruising lifestyle. Maybe this is an opportunity to do that. So they, they bought a sailboat in Vancouver. Um, Actually, take that back Seattle, it was a Canadian built catch called the Brandlemeyer and moved us on the sailboat. And then we sailed down to Ventura, California, and we lived on the boat for about seven years. And we would take trips to Mexico and and off the coast. And the idea that there was this big trip ahead in the future. um, And I would comment, like being growing up in a sailboat as an adult, looking back, I'm like, that's amazing. It was amazing childhood. But at the time, you're as a boat kid, you're kind of like, like a Midwest trailer park kid, you know, yeah. in California, like living on a boat is like being from a trailer park yeah. um, in California. So as you know, you, how big is the boat? Uh, it was 50 feet. So and there's four of you on it. Yeah. Four of us. We did have our own separate room, but you add a dog to the mix and there's not much, not a lot privacy. of space. Yeah. Wow. Not a lot of space. No wonder you're so, I mean, we are in a one yeah. bedroom studio here. No wonder you're so <laughs> yeah. comfortable in here. Yeah. This is like a palace. Yeah. Uh, so, what yeah. were the sailing trips like going down to Mexico and stuff like that? I mean, this is, I'm guessing, late 80s, mid 80s. Yeah, I remember being the first real trip we took to to Mexico and the Sea of Cortez. It was amazing, you know, for so down around the point, kid. yeah, down, down around, around Baja. Baja, yeah, up into the Sea of Cortez. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, it's amazing for a kid snorkeling. I remember, you know, as as a very young kid, I got invited to go on this to help crew because I had grown-ups you know now I'm living on the boat I'm sailing I got into surfing that way um, I, I'm in Cabo San Lucas as a 10 or 11 and this guy comes up to me he's like hey kid can you sail help me sail this thing and he points to this catamaran I was, I was like yeah it's like you know I'll, I'll give you some money I need to help crewing I have I have a sor- group of sorority girls from San Diego State on the boat <laughs> you know, it was a very like a learning experience too so we had these like sorority chicks on this this catamaran and they're just partying it up drinking and here's this little 11 year old and they're like hey come to come to squid row tonight and watch the video we shot so i'm in squid row like these girls are shaking their boobs in my face hang on one second i've been to squid row squid row is like 
uh, how can I put this? Americans will know what it is, uh, but Australians try and think of Orchid Avenue on the Gold Coast at the height of schoolies week every single night of the year. That's what this this bar is like. It's insanity. Yeah, it's just all the tequila. It's just people you can't blink without someone going tequila. And <laughs> there's a guy in the middle with a microphone who's yeah. like the guys with the whistles and they're pumping the party up. Yeah, you're 11 years old and all these girls are lordy. Yeah. Quite the education. Yeah, no, exactly. I, oh, you're so cute. Come here. The, the funny story was, um, so my I went to shore with our with our skiff. You know, we, we took the skiff ashore, tied it up in Cabo. At the time, Cabo didn't even have the hotels or marina. We had one dock. And it was like where those hotels are. It was a cow field. And I remember my dad says, hey, son, make sure you're back. And it, you know, the nice thing about my parents were very trusting and said, Hey, go have a good time. They say, make make sure you're back here by, you know, 10 o'clock or this boat's leaving. And we were anchored up off of, off Cabo and I missed the boat. So I'm, I find, and I think I even like fired, fired down a few beers at 11 and I ended up uh, having to swim with all my clothes out to the boat and crawl up, um, like climb up the anchor chain and get on the boat. How far is this swim? I don't think the swim was that far. Maybe, you know, it's maybe 500 meters, but still at the middle of the middle night. Of night in Cabo, right by the cannery, you know, and so I sauce. I climb on the a bit boat. shocky out there. Yeah. My, my dog starts barking. We had this little black cocker spaniel. And, you know, my dad comes out to give me a hard time and he sees like I'm, you know, three sheets to the wind. And he's just like, oh shit. My mom's like, just let him go to sleep. So we had a hammock up on the bow. And I remember. Yeah, being uh, 11, waking up to that Cabo sun. And I was, you know, I had the blanket and I was steaming, you know, because I was wet with all my clothes. But um, anyway, it was, a, it was a fun, fun experience as a kid getting to fish and dive and meet all these locals, work on my Spanish. Um, I ended up coming back and I got a job, my first real job on a scuba diving boat out of Venture Harbor called the Peace. And it was a 65 foot boat. We had a hot tub on the boat. It, it was a party boat. And again, you know, here's, I'm a 12 year old kid. I get the job. They said, Hey, we, you know, we don't need any deckhands, but we could use you to kind of help. And if you want to work for tips and, you know, help people off with their gears or coming out of the water on the swim step, we, you know, we'd love to have you. So I worked that job the first summer. I had one of the captains taught me how to dive on the boat, all, all ocean, no open water, no, no pool stuff. Uh, learn how to scuba dive. And each year I would come back and work. And by the 13, I was diving with double 72 tanks. I was being taught how to spear fish and grab lobster. Uh, it was, you know, it's just an amazing experience. And at the same time, you know, being around, uh, you know, the captains of the boat, these, these characters. Men, hardened yeah. men. <laughs> hardened men, yeah. That swear like sailors. Absolutely. And... You know, my dad was always there for me, but I did, I, I feel a strong connection during that period of my life to these guys that were uh, Captain Mike Roach, the owner, Bill McGee. They just really looked out for me. And at the same time, you know, I remember Bill, I was really into playing cards as a kid, you know, 13, 14, I was, I was into poker and Bill would like slip me a hundred to like ante up for this, you know, poker game that we would play twice a year. We'd invite all the craziest uh, divers out for this hunting trip. And 
and we called the group the animals and um, we'd have these crazy poker games after a day of diving and these guys are drinking whiskey and you know they didn't let me drink on the boat as a kid but bill was like here you know here's 100 bucks like let's pony up and i remember like as a 14 year old winning these like five six hundred dollar pots <laughs> like this is great man. and uh it was just a real real experience so what i mean i can't even imagine like when you come september i think the school year starts here in the states what did you do over summer oh it's not berry farm what did you do over summer i won five hundred dollars off a bunch of you know <laughs> just loose pirates yeah. <laughs> out at sea with spear fishing <laughs> eating what we killed that day yeah exactly so school just like how did school even occupy you you know it's it was a point you know it was an interesting period in my life when i was i think uh a freshman in high school, I did feel a bit out of place because it was hard to identify with the the group that I was hanging out with. And at the time, this this gets into my old why I became a SEAL story. I had a group of friends that were, you know, we were all surfing, hanging out in the, in the harbor together, but they started getting into hardcore drugs. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. I, I remember specifically, um, a time, um, in fact, I'm going to save the story, but and for in a bit, but, you know, seeing that my, where my friends were headed, I just was like, I wanted to be on the boat more and more. Um, so I remember um, being about 15 and my dad came to me and the family says, look, we're going to sail to New Zealand. That's the plan. And at the time I was 15, I was an experienced diver. I probably had over easy over a thousand log dives um i was extremely comfortable in the water i i remember you know when i was when i first got the job and started diving and kind of getting into my own and and being accepted as a full deckhand i remember getting woken up at two in the morning where we're at san miguel island which is off the coast of uh santa barbara and it was 2 a.m the captain shakes me awake he's like hey brandon get your wetsuit on like the we have to move the boat and the anchor stuck and sometimes we do that. We'd, you know, the weather would pick up, the boat would start rocking, and we'd have to move it for the comfort of the passengers. And I'm thinking, man, there's like a seal rookery out here. It's like a little sharky. It's 2 a.m. The visibility is like three feet. Like this sucks. Like, and I was like, this is all going through my head. It's like, I don't want to get in that water. <laughs> I'm like 13 years old. But, you know, diving, you know, down and getting that anchor chain at night with a flashlight and seeing it wrapped around this huge ledge having to deal with that at 13 and and do it like overcome those fears was uh you know it was a gift and so now i'm my dad's telling me about this this trip when i'm 15 and, and i didn't want to go i was about to get my driver's license permit i wanted to chase girls at 15 i was a rock star in the harbor i had i was a paid deckhand now so i'm i was a rescue diver i was getting paid probably 150 bucks a day plus tips, no rent. You know, I'm living with my parents. I'm rolling, you know, and I'm, I'm giving lobster to the Italian restaurant uh, in trade for like food credit at the restaurants, taking my families out to dinner. So I, I really was at a point where I didn't want to go on this big trip. Um, but we, we ended up taking off, going down to Cabo again, and then from Cabo shooting across to the mainland and I'll probably get it out of order, but I remember like Ixtapa, uh, Manzanillo, Mazatlan, and then all the way to, or we went to Puerto Vallarta and then Acapulco. 
And when we're in Acapulco, I turned 16 at the Acapulco um, Yacht Club. And, you know, they, my mom went back to the States with my sister to, to take care of some stuff and see our, see our grandparents. And, you know, these guys at the Acapulco Yacht Club, right, there's all these crazy, like, cruising pirates. And you get anyone from, like, the guy that made a million dollars selling drugs, it's now, like, living on the boat ah. abroad. <laughs> 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 or, uh, you know, these two gay guys that were just like, screw it, we're going to pack up and sail around the world. I mean, it's just such an odd group of people. Um, but I remember this guy, he was like, hey, you're 16, like, we're taking you out. And they took me out and got me smashed. Like, it was crazy. But um, and my, my mom would have killed me if she had it known. <laughs> so from Acapulco, we go to the Marquesas Islands, for, and it took us 30 days. Um, we get to the Marquesas. Where are they? Um, the Marquesas, if you look at, um, you know, imagine the globe and you have Mexico, if you shoot straight uh, west you're going to hit the South Pacific and they're the first Island chain, uh, on the South Pacific. So you have the Marquesas, the French, uh, Tuamotos, the atolls, uh -huh. and then the society islands, which is Tahiti, Bora Bora, Marea. Uh -huh. And so we sailed, it took us 30 days to get there. Wow. And yeah, I still, I give my dad and, and mom a lot of credit because here we are on this 50 foot boat. It's just you and your father. Well, it's me, my dad, and we have, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone's back on the boat. My, okay. they, they flew north, they came back, okay, okay. and we went on the, the passage. And, you know, I, from 12 a.m. to 3 p.m., I was on watch by myself, you know, sitting in the middle of that ocean, looking at the stars. Um, it's, it's pretty humbling, you know, to be in that environment. It's such a beautiful environment. I, I think of that movie, The Life of Pi, if you remember, if you've seen that, where the he's at night, he's seeing the phosphorescence and the whale. I mean, I've seen I've seen stuff like that in the middle of the ocean. It's it's, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, so we get to the Marquesas, and there's been this escalation of um, like wanting to do things a certain way. I I wanted to do things a certain way. My dad would be like, "No, we're doing it this way." And then we pulled to the Marquesas. I told my father, I, I said, we need to switch out our bow anchor for a Bruce because we had a, a plow anchor on the bow that was designed to hold in, in sand and mud, right? And I'm the, I'm the kid that used to get, get them unstuck. Yeah. So I said, we should switch anchors. He's like, no, no, no. It, was, it became this like period where we're butting heads about everything. And I'm a 16-year-old with a chip on my shoulder. You know, my mom says, looking back, she's like, you were right most of the time because in hindsight, you had more boating experience than your father. But he said, you just drove your father nuts, like the yeah. way you would be, have such a chip on your shoulder. So we anchored up in Hiva'oa that first night. We wake up, we drug the bow anchor because we set a bow and stern anchor. <clears throat> and it was basically like, I told you so. <laughs> you know? And so I made it, fast forward, I made it to Tahiti and my dad and I had an argument about something, something boating related. And we almost like went to blows over it. Wow. And it was a real, you know, heated moment. And we sat down, like it calmed down. And he said, look, son, you're independent. You know, this, this isn't working out. He's like, why don't we consider like getting a plan for you to get on and, and get off the boat? And it wasn't like a violent episode where it's like, here's your bags and get, get off the mm. sailboat. 
you know, we talked about it and it made, he made sure that we both had a plan. And so I left home at 16 in the South Pacific on a uh, 50 foot sailboat. And I found crew on a catamaran sailing to Hilo, Hawaii. And I called my, my boss up on the boat and the schooling I did was on independent studies. So I was on my, that was my junior year and I'd finished it. I actually finished my whole school year on that 30 day passage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what you can get done. Right. When yeah. You, when you have no distractions. Yeah. Uh, so I left home at 16, went to Hawaii, called the owner of the boat, Bill. And I said, look, would you let me live on the boat and work and finish my school? He said, no, nah, not a problem. Cause uh, you know, I, those guys love me on the, on that, on the boat. So I come back, I find myself back in Ventura Harbor and working on the boat. And I still had probably six months left in the, in the regular school year, but I had already completed it. So I had my, my little card. So if the cops stopped me, I could show them my independent study pass. Uh -huh. But I worked on that boat and, and it's, that was a time I met two guys from SEAL team five. Oh, I came that group of hunters that would come up twice a year. Uh, one of the guys brought a couple of these seals and I remember they, I remember coming out of the water and I had like this 40 pound halibut I'd speared and a bag full of lobster. And these guys are like, who's that kid? You know? So they're like, Hey, come over here. And they kind of like filled me in. Like, what are you doing? You know, like this is, you, you should check out this program. And I had no idea what, what the hell it was to be a seal uh, until that moment. And at the time now, uh, what I mentioned earlier about my friends off the boat, these guys were just getting into the hardcore drugs. And I remember a, like a moment of clarity for me was we were skateboarding out, drinking beers one night, um, you know, just being, being a bunch of, you know, degenerates in the hardcore. Teenagers, yeah. what you do. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. <laughs> and these guys were freebasing cocaine. God damn. At 16? Yeah. Far out, man. And I, well, I didn't participate in it. And I remember towards the end of the night, they, when they were crashing, they went back to this like just crappy Harbor bathroom where they like cooked this shit up and tried to like find some scrapings and remnants. Like it was such, for me, that was like a, such a def, like really defining moment in, in my life. Because I looked at that and I said, how, like, that's just such they've hit rock bottom. And these guys were like talented guys, great surfers. And I just saw it as them like throwing their lives completely away. Like, this is what we've come down to. You're at this Harbor bathroom at two in the morning, trying to like scrape up some type of drugs that you may have left behind earlier. And I just was like, I don't want anything to do with it. So at that point in time, I, I said, I've got to get out of this environment. And I, I decided to join the Navy. So I was... Did those two guys give you somebody to call? The two SEALs from SEAL Team 5? They didn't give me... I, I think I maybe had one number because I did have a conversation with the guy um, about it. And then at the time... It's funny, game recognizes game. They would have seen you and gone, yeah, yeah he, he doesn't know it, but he's got it. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. know it yet, but he's got yeah, it. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. And so... So just two, two things there. Like one, there's not many men that get to have such a clear metaphor and such a clear moment in their lives where they break from their father like that. Yeah. You know, some people aren't that lucky. 
yeah. to have that clear moment. Some people are still, they're in their thirties and forties. They still haven't had that moment. Um, and it, my dad and I recently have really both worked at our relationship, but it, it was tough. Yeah, it, it would have been. And it got weirder because they, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. Um, so they came back, they made it to New Zealand, had a great trip. They took a break. They flew back to the States. And my dad, who was also a diver, not, not a very experienced, he had, but he was certified. He, I invited him out as a guest on the boat. And I put him in the water uh, on the backside of Santa Cruz Island. We had this little island off of the backside of Santa Cruz called Gull, Gull Island. I put him in the water. I said, hey, this is where you go. Kind of gave him some tips and got him in ahead of the group of passengers on the boat. So he's diving and we put everyone, me and the dive master, put everyone else in the water. Then all of a sudden he pops up in the kelp and he's in the surf like impact zone. Uh. And the way he takes a wave on the head, you know, not, not a big one, but enough to like freak him out a bit. And he gets tangled in the kelp. He spits his regulator out, which is your air source. Yeah. And he's panicking. Like I, and my dad is not a guy to panic. I mean, he is like a guy that, you know, could have played professional hockey in Canada. He's a guy's guy. Yeah. And I'm looking at my father now. We've had this episode in Tahiti. You know, a year later, he's back out with me. And I am I had to go rescue him. And I pulled him out. I could jump in the water, swam there, like in my trunks. And this is probably like February, March. So cold, 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 cold. Yeah. And grabbed him out. And... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And that it was just, it was incredibly awkward to see like my, my dad, who I did look up to, you know, is your father and, and he's this tough guy. And I just at 17 saved his life and we didn't talk about it. And it, he was embarrassed, of course, too, because, you know, yeah. the captain saw, you know, what had happened and um, we didn't talk about it until maybe five, six years when I was in the SEAL teams and I was skiing at his house up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I was talking to my SEAL buddies. Um, you know, we just were at the lodge having a few beers. And one of my buddies, my friend, my best friend, Glenn Doherty, who I lost in Benghazi, Libya. Glenn was there and he, he was a medic. And he was telling these stories about, you know, life-saving. And my dad, he just said, hey, I, I just want to, like, get something on the table right now. And he told the story about me saving his life. And he's like, I've never thanked my son. And I just want to thank you. And he had tears in his eyes. And I'm like, I'm getting teary. I just thinking about it. But he acknowledged it and like said, thank you. You know, like I've never, he's like, it was tough for me. So having all that to deal with, um, you know, it affected our relationship for a long time, but, but now it's, it's nice to see we're, you know, we're back on good terms and, and working at it. But, 
But there's not many, again, there's not many men that have those moments. I mean, it all happens when the parent is the carer there's all of the child there's yeah. all then it happens the child becomes the carer of the parent and yeah. it's a psychological shift that has to happen for us to become adults yeah to grow into adults yeah. there's not many people that get it so clearly as you <laughs> yeah, at 17. so i've i've seen the military channel i've seen yeah. discovery channel i've seen the in 10 weeks these people will be navy seals i've seen the documentaries <laughs> It looks like the hardest thing ever, ever, ever. What is the selection process like to become a Navy SEAL? It's, it's incredibly tough, um, more psychologically. The program is designed to weed out the, the people that don't want to be there. Um, you know, they think maybe they have this idea, but they, it's such a miserable experience. And at the same time, like the worst and the best experience I've ever had in my life. Um, you know, the reason I told you my... You know, I went long on the background. It's all right. When I think about, because people always ask me, like, how how do you know who has it? And you can't. Like, you can't. You would line up a group. We we started in my class, two hundred and twenty. We graduated twenty three seven months later, twenty three originals. And if you had to line them up and the, and seen like the twenty three at the end, and you would and tried to pick them out of a lineup at the beginning, not a chance. I mean, you're going to be picking out the guys that you know can bang out a thousand push ups, or there's the you know, full scholarship runner at Arizona State. And these guys are like dropping like flies because they've never had to to deal with adversity and develop tools to to overcome it. And I that is and you can't you can't see that by looking at somebody. You can't see what's inside of them. And you know, when I think about all my friends who are in the special operations unit, even the guys I serve with within uh uh, Afghanistan, the SAS guy from Australia. We're all cut from the same cloth. We all have these crazy experiences as kids and growing up. It, and it, not to say that we all come from, you know, crazy families and, you know, m my story, but, you know, I've got a friend that grew up in Iowa and he had to work four hours on the farm before he went to school. You know, his dad was like, hey, get up, son. You got to help, help the family out. And so learning, you know, how to work hard and deal with that kind of hardship when you're like, man, you're showing up to school and you got calluses on your hands, you work on the farm and, you know, these kids are, are drinking Starbucks <laughs> and it, it's just different. So um, the training is divided up into to three phases. First phase is uh, the conditioning phase, um, which is, you know, I think uh, six weeks, four weeks, and then you do a week called Hell Week where they keep you up for five and a half days straight with no sleep. Um, Hell week for me was a breeze because, and I'll tell you why, when I went, so here's my, to, to back up, I joined the Navy, I became a search and rescue swimmer in helicopters and an airplane. Like, I know this, I've been untangling anchor <laughs> since I was anchor chain, since yeah. I was 13 in sharky water. It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, I became a SAR swimmer. I was airborne sonar operator in H-60 Foxtrot helicopters. But I got kind of sidelined in that job because they didn't want to let me out of it. They said, hey, we've, we've trained you. This is a really undermanned job. Just stay here. I was like, no, I joined to be a SEAL. So I eventually, you know, I got out of there and went to SEAL training in 1997. And when I checked in for training, I was completely out of shape. I just got off the USS Kitty Hawk, this aircraft carrier, coming back from the uh, you know, Middle East deployment. 
So I was, I was in terrible shape for buds. I could barely pass the entrance test. And so I was, you had a 220 guys. There's always one guy that stands out and, and we, we call him that guy. And you don't want to be that guy. I was him. Like, <laughs> it was like, Hey Webb, you know, what the hell, you know, we're, class we're not going to eat chow until web does another 50 push-ups and i got 200 eyeballs on me and i'm shaking you know like crazy trying to like knock out a few more push-ups and they're like okay you're on remedial physical training tomorrow morning you'll show up before the class an extra 45 minutes uh, to do that we do these conditioning runs six eight mile runs in the sand on the beach and then towards the end of the run they they'd cut it off and like the end of the pack and they call that the goon squad. So I'm in the goon squad every time. So while everyone's stretching, drinking water after this eight mile run, I'm like running up the, the beach and the, and the sand hills on my all fours and just getting punished. I remember ripping the calluses off my hands. I was just, it was so bad. And I actually, before Hell Week started, four of the meanest first phase instructors took me away from the class and they tried to get rid of me. Cause I know that now having been an instructor, they were literally trying to get me out of the class. They wanted me to quit. And I remember literally staring at these instructors going, you know, you're going to have to take me out of here on a body bag. And, it, and they saw it in my eyes because at that point in time, after four weeks, they let me go. Like they didn't mess with me again because they saw they're like, OK, there's nothing we can do here. Like this kid's just polarized. He's going to do this. Yeah. And I and I had been through all these fuck fuck games with these instructors that when we got to hell week they started playing these little mental games with the whole class and i was like like i know this, this is just part of the training and, and everyone's like oh this is terrible and i'm like welcome to my world like i've been living in this world for four weeks yeah right <laughs> you know? so hell week was was pretty easy for me i didn't have a problem staying up um you know we we go to second phase which is the diving phase um where you you know you, and you do a, a pool competency test which is you go down to the bottom of the pool and right away you get a surf hit and so the instructor's like bam they hit you they rip your mask off your fins your weight belt everything and your whole idea is you have to stay underwater for you know an x amount of time and just take this abuse and keep on dealing with it and at a point i remember my regulator was tied in knots I, we were using these old double hose aqualung regulators they'd fill up the water and i had to like breathe off this tiny cracked stream of air coming off the tank like you know breathing off this thing just to stay underwater and fix my gear and so that that was pool comp um you know third phase was out at san Clemente island and and you think buds is getting easier by the end and it's not it's you know you're at san Clemente island the last four weeks of training you're doing demolition live fire getting three hours sleep a night for four weeks straight. Um, you know, maybe the instructors have a night out at the Island bar and come back and wake you up at 2 a.m. to have some fun with you. Every meal that you eat out at the Island, you have to do a physical test. Um, so in, for breakfast, you'd have to do 22 pull-ups fully kitted out just to eat dry. And if you'd missed a pull-up, you're going to go get in the ocean and eat wet outside. Um, you know, lunch, you'd have to run, sprint up the hill and they divide you up by squad. The last two poor bastards that don't make it up the hill, they're eating wet. You know, it's like every, that's just to eat, you know, and during, in between, you're doing all this other stuff and, you know, they're watching who has it, who doesn't, who's, who's sweeping somebody with a rifle, 
who's not paying attention on the demolition range and they'll safety violation you right out of there. Um, so I finished, you know, I graduated with class 215 and 23 out of 220. So it was a amazing experience. And you became, uh, how much of the training though, you talked a lot about the physicality of the training. Yeah. And as someone who has anxiety, I'm, I'm really interested to know how do they train? I mean, I know there's certain, there's a certain element of mental toughness you've got to have, but they've got to train you in the, in the stillness and the, and that, you know, staying calm in the face of peril. They put you in these situations that force you to adapt. So there's an evolution, um, a 50 meter underwater swim. You jump in the deep end feet first, you do a somersault underwater, a front flip, no push off the wall. You just somersault and have to swim to the other end, touch the wall, come back, no push off. Uh, and you realize coming back, most guys, I would say, unless they're really a uh, strong breath holder, um, that you get this to a point where you're like, you're in that panic mode. You know, when you, if you've ever held your breath underwater and you feel like what it's like mm. when you're running out of air and you realize if you slow down and just force yourself to relax, your heart beats slows, you use up less oxygen and you get more clarity and you can push through. Like it's a lot of runners describe it as that zone where they, they're just about to bonk and then they get that second wind and, and just push through. And I think that's what it's like in these, these situations. Um, and they put you in so many of them that you just become able to notice when you're there and be able to adapt to it. The threshold increases, yeah, increases, increases. Absolutely. And you become more aware of what you're actually capable of. Yeah. And even, I would say even more so when I went to sniper training later on in my career and, and eventually became an instructor, I, I ran the program the last three years I was in, we put so much pressure on these guys to force them to, to adapt and see who has it or, or who doesn't. Um, and I mean, it, I don't know when this podcast airs, but you know, American Sniper, that was, Chris, yes. Chris was one of my students. Marcus Luttrell was in Lone Survivor, was a personal student of mine. Um, you know, and the, those guys would probably both tell you that they would rather go through the BUDS training I just described to you over again, rather than go through sniper school. Cause it's three months of just complete mind fuck. Like we're drilling down on these guys and just making sure that they, they have what it takes. Like we're ratcheting up the stress levels and the stuff we could. We could so you're, you're, a, you're a, you're a seal sniper. What's the, what's the job description? What do you have to be able to do to be a seal sniper? Oh, you have to shoot straight. <laughs> um, so after buds, I went to three months of seal tactical training where you really learn how to be a seal, like how to enter a house and clear, clear it, how to dive. And, you know, you really learn the advanced skills of being a seal. I got to seal team three. I got into a, my first seal platoon at the end of our training cycle. And usually you, you'll train for 12 to 18 months and then you'll deploy overseas. At the end of my training cycle, um, Glenn Doherty, who I mentioned earlier, um, him and I got pulled into the office and we're new guys. And as a new guy seal, it's like you shut up and do your job and you're expected just to figure things out. You know, it's probably, you know, like 
in New York City, I see these interns just getting hammered on, right? It's like, you just got to do it. And then, you know, you come from that production world, you understand, you, you got to have your shit together, or you're, you're out of here. There's 10,000 yeah. people tomorrow that'll do it for yeah, free. Exactly. <laughs> that's um, pretty much it. And in the SEAL teams, that's what we say, you have to earn your trident every day. And, and our motto is the only easy day is yesterday. And so it's like, you've got to earn it every day. Um, so we're new guys and we get called into the office by our uh, platoon commander and in uh, our chief Dan and I'm, they said hey look you guys are the best shots in the platoon out of the new guys we're down two snipers we're gonna send you to sniper school you when, two were going to yeah, top gun. yeah exactly <laughs> it was a less <laughs> it was a less glamorous moment but it was Berlin the same was kind the of best shit we had yeah it was the same kind of thing because it was like you're going and don't fuck it up yeah new guy yeah and so <laughs> At the time, new guys weren't given that opportunity. Like yeah. it was unheard of. And so Glenn and I are thrilled at the opportunity and terrified because we knew that the, these, the platoon is counting on us. We're, we're in the, the part of our SEAL career where you're still developing your professional reputation. And who wants to like have that you know, black mark on the record of not made it, getting the opportunity as a new guy and not making it through? So... Um, I, Glenn and I went classed up together and, you know, we, we graduated at the top of our class, but it felt every day, it felt like we were going to, like, we we're one minute away from a, a bus ticket home. Like, that's how it felt. That's how stressful it was. Cause we we're always trying to go, like trying to figure out what our shooting scores were and this and that. And there's so many things that you're graded and judged on. We just didn't know, you know, you're coming up with this like black magic formula <laughs> and trying to figure out where you fall on the list. Um, but we finished that, and um, I, I'm probably going on a tangent here. But uh, it's all I, right. I just, you know, what what, other, what, what I know about snipers, what yeah. I've seen from the Mark Wahlberg film Shooter, that you've got to, all I know is that you've got to be able to crawl into somewhere, maybe miles, yeah. sit there for five days, and wait and maybe not execute your mission, and then crawl out and have nobody know about it. That's, is that basically yeah. it? So that that is is part of it, and I want to make sure we get on time because i I've got a I've got a really cool story I want to share with, yeah, with your hey, listeners. Yeah, all good. <laughs> I got a lunch at twelve twelve forty five. So okay, I got plenty of time. You got time? I'll talk to you all okay. day, man. All right, man. All right. Uh, so so that's one aspect of the sniper mission. The the SEAL community is is a little different. We have um, our own sniper program. You know, the, the Marine Corps has theirs. The Army has two separate ones. We developed our own corps. Um, and, and so our course, we're getting guys that have already been through SEAL selection. So we can focus on, like, what we want to fine-tune them to. In the SEAL community, most of the guys that graduate go on to be single shooters. So they're not paired up. Like you see in the movies sometimes, that shooter-spotter pair. Most of the missions that we use the snipers and the SEAL teams. Um, it could be a mission like you described, but it's typically, typically gonna be one guy who's supporting a smaller element or potentially four separate guys, four separate shooters. We, don't, we have such low numbers in the SEALs, we can't afford to put two guys together. So we have to teach them how to operate and think on their own and make the calculations um, and, do, and make those decisions all on their own without a, somebody to help them out. Um, and so we train to that standard 
where a lot of the other sniper programs will train um, and put a lot of that kind of selection stuff in there, like, oh, let's weed people out. We just, we don't, we don't have to do that. We're already getting sealed. So we're focused on like in three months of, and we got them for seven days a week. We're going to focus on advanced ballistics um, and just really push these guys to a, an Olympic level of caliber of shooting um, and also work on the stress stuff. And there's all sorts of stuff that you can do to induce stress, but back to the missions, we have a, a lot of uh, helicopter support missions where I was in um, Northern Arabian Gulf in 99, and we were enforcing the UN sanctions that Saddam was smuggling oil out of Iraq, and he was supposed, only supposed to be oil for food. So the oil smugglers would come out of Iraq in the middle of the night, and they would weld themselves shut in these ships because what happened was these boarding teams would get on, like say the regular Navy would board them. They'd go up there and knock on the bridge and the guys would just wave at them and they couldn't get in. And so, and then the boat would get into Iranian waters and the boarding team would have to come off. So that's when they started using the seals. They're like, okay, we need to, we need to solve this problem. So they brought us on and we would board the ship in the middle of the night. And my job as a sniper in the helicopter I would look at the FLIR and the helicopter and identify the ship. So I'm going to go, okay, that's that's a target. It meets the criteria. I would radio down that information to the platoon who's staged in boats in the water. And, and then I would pass information to the platoon because they haven't seen the ship. Maybe it was a part of an intel package, but usually it was a ship we just had no idea. So I would tell the platoon commander, okay, we have 20 foot of freeboard. Um, I recommend that you hook on the aft of the ship right near this. You'll see it when you come up alongside. And so they, we would time it. So the guys in the boats would come up on both sides of the ship. They'd hook. And at the same time, I'd slide in uh, to position in the helicopter. And now I'm in the door with the laser, uh, an IR laser. So it's not visible to the naked eye. And I'm making sure I'm doing threat management. I'm seeing, okay, is somebody coming out? Have, have we taken the ship by surprise? I'm passing that information back and forth. Then the breachers, because these most cases, they lock themselves in. We'd have a breacher with cut, cutting torches. They would, we stopped attacking the welded problem. We just would like hop on the roof. And because it was thin skin metal, we could just cut a hole in the roof with the torches. So we'd get up there in the middle of the night and, and the boys start going to work, you know, the tours like <laughs> cutting this thing and, you know, they drop a couple flash grenades down there, boom, 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 get in the boat. And within, you know, five minutes, that ship's under our control. And so as a, as a sniper, I'm there to make sure they're safe and there's no threats. But in most cases, we would take the boat completely by surprise and have it under control in, in under 10 minutes. It was an amazing thing to watch, but... That's a common, you know, a real common sniper mission. And so what, you're 25? Yeah. <laughs> At that time, I was probably 23, 22 Whoa. years old. I was, you know, a lot of responsibility for Yeah, man. I was, I was back announcing Celine Dion songs on the radio in, in Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> not quite the same level of, uh, <laughs> not quite the same level of jeopardy going on there. So yeah. let, let's fast forward a couple of years, something yeah. we talked about very briefly, you know, we're both in New York City. Um, you were in active duty on the morning of September 11. Yeah. What do you remember about that day? Um, I remember getting up at 5 a.m. to go for a surf um, before work. You're on the it's West Coast? On the West Coast in San Diego. 
I was in SEAL Team 3 Echo Platoon, and our platoon commander of Echo was a guy named Chris Cassidy. Chris is the second SEAL, Navy SEAL astronaut. Like the guy's up in space, like amazing guy. I get back um, from surfing to see the second plane hit the towers. And at the time I was married and, and uh, Gretchen, my ex-wife, was uh, pregnant, uh, eight months pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant with our first son. And I remember seeing that plane hit the second time, knowing what was happening, like how, you know, the heaviness of it and that I was the next SEAL platoon to rotate overseas because we were at the end of our training cycle. And literally, you know, as that thought was going through my head, my phone's ringing and I'm being recalled back to the command. And then I thought, I'm probably not going to see my the birth of my son. And so that, that's what went through my mind. Did you get briefed that day? Yeah, we got briefed. Wow. We packed our stuff. And within a few days, we were off. We were overseas. We staged in Jordan for a while. And then we went right over into to uh, Kandahar. And so like right there on October 7, you were yeah, there? Right wow. there. So it was, uh, it was heavy. I, I remember. What do, you even, what do you even say to your, you know, to your, to your wife at the time? You know, she understood. I mean, I give her a lot of credit. Her, her and I have a great relationship to this day with our, you know, and mostly because we focus on the kids. Um, and, you know, I, I give her credit. I mean, she, she was younger than I was, you know, and, and just to see how stoic she was and she, she took it, you know, she took the, she was like, you have a job to do. And, and like, I, like, I understand. Were you on staying on base? Were you both on base? We were off, went off base housing uh -huh. and we just bought a house actually yeah. in, in Ocean Beach in San Diego. And she, she was a champ. And I, I remember, you know, calling her right before I went into Afghanistan and then literally um, the next time we spoke because, of, you know, eventually, you know, when, when you get into a country like that and over time, you know, the infrastructure gets set up and you get some connectivity back to the real world. Well, it took time and literally the next phone call we had, I was seeing pictures of uh, my son, you know, this beautiful like redhead boy going, oh my God, you know, that's, that's wild. And he was literally, you know, if I was to time date stamp it, I was in this cave complex, Salwar Keeley in Northern Afghanistan, Pakistan, like hunting bad guys while my son was born. So it was a pretty surreal moment for me. And it, it's one of the main reason why I wrote the red circle was to have something that my kids could look back on and read and see about dad and all my, my crazy life and, and realize how much, even though I was gone when they were young, how much, you know, I, you know, that I love them. Like, it's like, Hey, I, this was me, that part of my life. And I remember, you know, my son, uh, Hunter, he's an avid reader. I mean, my kids aren't, I keep like, look, knock one, I need knock on wood because they're so, they become such incredible people, these little human beings. And, um, my oldest son, you know, straight A student scored a perfect on his, you know, California math tests. Like he's just this prodigy, this happy, like ladies man. And he's like nerdy into video games. And, um, you know, he's, he's more advanced at math than I am. And I took it in college. Like he's really, he's got it. And he set a reading record at school. And I said, and he asked me to read my book. 
he's like, dad, can I read the red circle? And there's some adult content in there. And I said, you know what? I said, okay, you can read it. And so I signed a copy to him. And, you know, I dedicated the book to, to my three children. And I remember Hunter read the book in like two days. Wow. And he's like that. Like he read Steve Jobs' biography in like a day. Like he's that kind of reader. And he said, dad, he's like, I was like, what did you think? And, and at the time he read it, it was at the time that we, that I lost uh, my best friend, Glenn in Benghazi, Libya. And Glenn was really tight with my kids. And we would, we were both pilots and would fly the kids around together. Um, and so it was, I think it was, you know, and my son cried, you know, he watched it on the news and that was uncle Glenn. And, and you know, my ex, like we all felt that, felt that loss. And I think it was therapeutic for my son, who was, uh, I think, 11 at the time, to read this. And afterwards, he said, well, you know what, Dad? I was sad, but it, he's like, I really am. I'm so proud of you. And he's like, I cried. He told me, he's like, I cried when I read the part about you and mom and dealing with the stuff when you were in Afghanistan. Um, but it was, it was a, you know, to have him say, I'm so proud of you and thank you. And it was like a huge moment for me. And I was like, that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to pass those life lessons on to my kids. You've mentioned the losing people twice now. Um, yeah. Is it okay if we talk about some of the trickier questions? Absolutely. I mean, it's, is that it's, all right? Yeah. It, it's one of the reasons why I just, I just finished my latest manuscript called Among Heroes, and it's about eight of my friends that I lost and it, it was, a, it was therapy for me. You know, it's, it's been very therapeutic. Well, so most, I, don't, I don't mind talking about uh, it. Well, thank you. Most people will lose their parents while they're alive, probably one or two friends and someone that they went to school with. Uh, I heard that person died, but most people, if they're lucky, won't see that many people that they're close with die in the training. Is there anything that prepares you for this? I think in the training um, in general, and this goes for most of the special operations selections, include like the SAS being one of the hardest, you know, training programs in the world with, in addition to the SEALs, you're, you're given those tools to, to just push through those situations. And, and I think we're, we become really good at compartmentalizing that stuff because when you're, I remember being, you know, freezing in training and have the instructors look at me as like, if you think this is cold, you have nothing. Like it's colder in the SEAL teams. And I remember like, yeah, whatever, buddy. Like I'm, I'm like ready to die of hypothermia here. But being fast forward, being in Afghanistan at 12,000 feet and snow and missing an extract and waiting, having to wait another six hours, it's and being in a really bad situation with, you know, enemy all around surrounding you in the mountains. And now you're here, you're you're not prepared to, to overnight in this cold environment. It's dropping below freezing. You're at high altitude. And it's like, at that point, it's like you can either choose to deal with it. Um, you could panic, freak out, but that you realize that that's not going to solve anything. So what do I have to do to push through this and, and get through this? And you, so you think of it that way and you just compartmentalize all the bad stuff and focus on the positive to what is going to, what do you, what can you do to accomplish the mission or get through this event, whether it's a friend dying or, or being stuck in the mountains like that. 
And I think that the, the training does, does definitely give you those tools and, and has helped me deal with, with a lot of this stuff. So it can't get any easier. No, it, it's tough. I mean, it, for me, I had a, I had a personal um, decision I made when I, when I started losing friends that were close to me in the SEAL teams, because we started, we, we had a major helicopter crash in Afghanistan, two of them. Um, I said, I don't, I'm not, I made a choice not to go to, to the funerals because there was a, there was a year I remember I could have been at a funeral every, every other month. And I, I just didn't want to deal with it. I, I said, you know what, my way of getting through this right now, I've got to just push this aside and do my job. And, and I, I'm going to like in my head, like these guys, I, I'm going to honor them in my own way. But when I, when I was out of the military and Glenn and I, you know, had this close friendship and continued to fly. We're, you know, we're doing in business together and, and really a, a part of each other's lives. And when he died in Libya, I couldn't get out of it. Like it was the first memorial that I had was, I don't want to say forced to go to, but it felt like I had to be there for his family. Cause at the time I'm, I'm in media now I'm dealing with the media they're getting harassed by the press. So I, I had to run interference there. There was funding issues, the government, you know, and the CIA weren't paying out on the insurance policy. So the family stressed out about money. So I helped raise the money to pay for everything. So the family didn't have to worry about it. Um, but I, I was, so that point, I had to deal with the grief of losing my best friend and then all my other close friends that I'd lost, it, it came over me like a tidal wave. It really um, was like a tidal wave. And, and I was in a, a close relationship with a, with a beautiful girl um, at the time. And it, it affected, like it was a, like caused us to, to lose that intimacy and essentially break us up. And it, it was, I was dealing with all this grief um, which I never had, you know, I never felt suicidal or any of that type of thing, but you, we all deal with it in our own way. But it, it, it was overwhelming. I put it off for so long and it just came over me. And I said, how do I, you know, what's, how can I deal with this? And I decided to tell their stories, like my story of meeting these amazing people and, and making these friendships. Cause in your early twenties, you know, you're, and you're being in these situations with these guys in combat and training and you develop this trust, like this guy's got my back. I, I have, I can trust him completely. And, you know, you have a bunch of close mates like that and then they're gone and you can't, you can't go replace those friendships overnight. Right. It just doesn't happen. And so I wanted to write a book and tell my story and, and focus on the positive character traits of these, these uh, friends that I had. Like Glenn was, everybody's friend like that guy with thousands of people showed up to this guy's and he, you know this isn't a celebrity here it's this guy that was a ski bum in salt lake city from boston who went in the navy but he like people out of the woodworks it was humbling for me to see the many, the many people come out but he had a an ethic around staying in touch with all of his friends like he just was the connector he's one of those guys connecting yeah. everybody and so you know that was that piece of glenn that i carry around with me there was Chris Campbell, who was, you know, this short little guy that you would never think would graduate SEAL training. And I remember uh, we were, we had messed something up and, and at, 
at night during a diving evolution. And after the dive, him and I are in this like tank where we dip our gear to rinse it off. And they say, hey, get in the dip tank. And we're up to our necks, you know, freezing. And we're in there for like an hour getting punished. And I look over at Campbell and he's just got this big shit eating grin on his face. Cause it's like, no matter what, he's happy. And he's like, I'm just happy to be here. Right. And it's contagious. And so all these, you know, these great people, including Matt Axelson, which is one of the guys that died in Lone Survivor, um, you know, all my friends, I wanted to write a book and honor them. And, and but it was, you know, it, it was, I feel selfish at times because it was really about me dealing with all that grief and over, overcoming it. But, you know, very well, you, long. You wouldn't be human if you didn't feel that. Yeah. But you can, you can put these things away for a certain amount of time, but they will, that energy will come out of you in some yeah. way at some point. You, yeah. you, you know, some people aren't so lucky to be able to deal with that energy coming out of them yeah. as well as you. And, you know, I think it's an important thing. It's like, you know. Do you have much support? Like if you needed someone to talk to, do you have yeah. much support? No, I do. I, I actually, I've, um, I've got my, my therapist who I won't be afraid to admit. You know, I, if I. I might have got three. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Maybe we should swap number. Um, My guy's great. Yeah. You know? He's but I, beating, beating drums in the woods kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> but being being self to like being self tuned enough to know where I'm going. Like I'll something will trigger something in me, and and go. You know what? I'm I'm not afraid to to call up this person or go see this person and get help to, yeah. to deal with it. And I, I think there's no problem with that. I think it it can be very powerful. Um towards living a, a, a really healthy life. And we'll leave our conversation with Brandon Webb there for this week, but we'll be back next week when he takes me through what it's like to be in action, to be on the front lines, what it's like to have someone in the sights of his sniper rifle scope and decide whether or not to take the shot. And his thoughts on what long-term good, in his words, what long-term good killing bad guys is bringing to the world. The answer will surprise you. You can find Brandon Webb on Twitter at B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-W-E-B-B. His book Red Circle is available now on Amazon. Um, Until next week, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for coming with me on this one. I know it's a bit of a departure from what um, my normal guests are or my regular guests are, but... uh, you know, I feel it's important to explore what else is out there in the world and, and sometimes be challenged by, by uh, you know, the people we meet. Um, I find Brandon to be a fascinating man and I'm really looking forward to bringing you next week's conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Until then, especially this week, be kind, take care of yourself, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>